The People's History of Kansas City podcast is supported by the Kemper Museum of Contemporary Art, celebrating 30 years at the Block Party on Saturday, May 4th. Visitors can enjoy music, food trucks, exhibitions, and artist-led activities. Learn more at KemperArt.org. You listen to A People's History of Kansas City for a fresh take on local history. We want to honor these stories, and we take the reporting very seriously. And sometimes we just need to chill. Want to hang? Let's party! Join us at our annual benefit, Radioactive, on June 14th. NPR's All Things Considered host Ari Shapiro will make a special appearance. And boy, it's gonna be bumping. You gotta be there. Please come support our work. Ticket information is available at kcur.org slash radioactive. 2023 marks the 50th anniversary of hip-hop, which started in New York City back in 1973. All over the country throughout this year, we've been celebrating this art form and hearing stories about how it's transformed over time and inspired new generations. But rarely does the spotlight get shined on the Midwest or Kansas City's hip-hop scene specifically. Everybody was young, they were hungry, they were talented and they were dope. It was just organic, like we didn't even know what we was doing. And I was like, that's that kind of music. This is the People's History of Kansas City. I'm Suzanne Hogan. Kansas City's hip hop scene has its own unique story to share. A mix of styles and influences from big names like Tech 9 to an array of underground artists. And KC hip hop deserves to get more credit for shaping how the genre transformed our own community and the nation. It's not like everybody's objective is like, oh, I want to be a famous rap star. You know what I'm saying? Some people like, shoot, they just want to hold it down. I heard Kansas City because sometimes they will praise the Bay Area rappers more than they praise their own. So we're doing it. We're shining that spotlight on our very own city, and I couldn't be more excited. And just a warning before we get going, there is some casual swearing in this episode. So Lawrence Brooks IV is our race and culture reporter here at KCUR, and he's been looking into all of this and is going to guide us through this. Mic check, one, two, one, two, mic check. PHKC, 50 years of hip-hop, Kansas City. Lawrence, I grew up in Kansas City, but admittedly wasn't a huge part of, like, the local hip-hop scene. But I understand that it was different for you. Hell yeah, it was different for me. My family, you know, they was always big into music, especially my mom. She played a lot of records and had a nice-sized record collection for the majority of my life. I heard a lot of blues, jazz, funk, soul, classic R&B, hip-hop, and even some rock music. Growing up here in the 80s and the 90s, obviously I naturally gravitated towards the music of my generation. Hip-hop, rap, in all its forms. What neighborhood did you grow up here in Kansas City? I grew up in the Marlboro neighborhood, you know. Shout out to 75th Street from Cleveland to Holmes. And I remember vividly that I brought my first tape from a beloved spot in the KC hip-hop scene. 7th Heaven, located on 77th and Shrewst Avenue. In Vallejo, California, Mr. Blackwoods. The year was 1992, and it was a Bay Area rap group called The Click, and it was their first studio album called Down and Dirty. Do you remember, like, what it felt like when you first listened to it? Do I remember? One word to describe that first feeling was game. Game, which is slang for being taught something very important, pivotal, or life-changing, Early hip-hop always had subliminal messaging, so it was very instructional for a young dude like me who lacked, you know, some guidance in certain areas of my life. 
But the experience of buying my first tape, it, that spawned into a huge CD collection that I used to listen to hip-hop while riding around in my 1984 two-tone blue Monte Carlo with T-tops. Sick. It's still one of the dopest cars I ever owned, especially for listening to music. And to this day, I still wish I never sold that car. I'm sad you sold that car, damn. I wish I had some pictures, man. So before we go too deep, let's step back a little bit. Why don't you tell me, where did hip-hop originally come from? Hip-hop, or what we know as rap music today, it started on August 11th, 1973, in a housing project in the Bronx, borough of New York City. It was a back-to-school party thrown by a girl named Cindy Campbell to raise money. Her brother, Clive Campbell, or the legendary DJ Cool Herc, who was known as the godfather of hip-hop, provided the music and entertainment for the party. There's a slang saying or phrase in Southern hip-hop called out the mud, which translates to starting from the bottom to ultimately rise to the top of something. It's the perfect metaphor for the historic genre's origin story. This world-renowned and arguably most influential music genre in human history came out of the Bronx, a place of extreme poverty due to redlining and other austerity politics of that era. The Bronx was so bad, it was labeled the most devastated urban area in all of the United States by 1975. Wow. So did that same sentiment kind of fit the vibe for its origins in Kansas City? Like, when when did it come to Kansas City? Yeah, hip-hop in Kansas City, you can say that. Uh, it really came up on the east side, which has historically been impoverished. Uh, you could find the early influences of hip-hop at places like Swell Park, Many high schools like Lincoln, Purcell, and Westport had parties celebrating the genre. There were spots littered up and down and around Prospect Avenue from Independence Avenue to Gregory Boulevard where you could find the new sound as well. But hip-hop, it was like coming here and mostly kicked off in the mid-80s. One of the people I talked to about this was Sean Edwards, who is a former hip-hop magazine writer. And he told me that hip-hop's early influence came from an unlikely source. One of the things that made hip hop popular in the 80s that really introduced the culture to the majority of the people were the movies. Sorry, man, auditions are over today, all right? You got to come back. Because you had a string of movies that came along that could actually show you what this culture looked like. You had movies like Breaking One and Breaking Two, and you had a movie like Crush Group. When you, when you get a chance to go into a movie theater and the lights go off and you're staring at this huge, you know, however big the movie screen is, and you get a chance to see the culture and absorb the culture. Another person who talked to me about this was Walter Edwin Jr., who was a teenager when hip-hop first reached Kansas City. That's my first experience as a hip-hop. Like watching Beat Street different movies of how they doing it and then we was doing the same thing. Everybody put your hands together like this. Come on, clap. These days, you might know him as KC rapper and entrepreneur, The Popper. He said the exposure to the culture through film had his entire neighborhood emulating and adding their own Midwestern spin to everything they saw. It was like hip hop was like a way of life. I just looked at them and they looked cool. That was the voice of Marcel Good. He was also a teen back then, and he told me this, this nut story about begging his grandfather for money to get into a theater to see one of these early hip-hop films. But there was pushback because his grandfather couldn't believe it cost a whole two bucks to see a movie during that period. Two dollars? And I'm like, 
I'll cut the grass. I'll do whatever for it. And I went and I saw that and I was like, that's that kind of music. And I, thinking back, like uh, I had them same conversations with my black grandfather. I can tell you that for sure. <laughs> hey. I mean, hip hop in Kansas City really started as an underground phenomenon. Uh, you know, basically because the local radio stations like KPRS 103.3 didn't really buy into the new and edgy form of music. KPRS might not have supported the actual playing of rap music as much as I would have wanted it to at that time. Marcel grew up in the Ivanhoe neighborhood as a self-described nerd, but he was immediately attracted to hip-hop. He told me a story about his mom happening to be a friend with a local promoter named Captain Von Zell, and Von Zell took a liking to young Marcel and treated him like a son. He did tell my mom he's kind of green, so since he's a little green, let's let him come up to my candy store. It was like an arcade candy store. Like, in black lore, uh, back then, there was always these candy stores. My mom and my aunties always talked about these candy stores they had in their neighborhood. So obviously, this is, you know, this was just part of the culture. This was, this was black small business back in the day. It was a hangout spot. Yeah, for sure. Bonzel was real smart, though. I think he could see that the music was changing. So he did a doggone good job of keeping youth around him. According to Marcel, it was really Von Zell who mentored him, giving him access to the equipment like turntables, mixers, amps, speakers. It broke Marcel out of his shyness and took his initial interest in hip-hop to another level. I think it was eighth grade. They wanted to have a little social for a fundraiser. And they said, well, you know, but we need to get a DJ. And I said, I could do it. I'll never forget everybody looking at me going, you can DJ? Yeah, I can DJ. Okay, now, after I say that, you know, I walked away, I went home that night and was like, what did I just do? You know, <laughs> what did I just do? Eventually, the day of the fundraiser came. You know, he got on the microphone and uh, started hyping me up. I didn't even have a DJ name yet. I think it was one of the dudes from the uh, crew said, and we have right here on the wheels and steels right about now, the young Marcel Good. I'll never forget that next Monday. That next Monday, it was everybody, hey, what's up, Marcel? What's going on, Sal? Hey, boy, you rocked them tables. And I'm like, huh, I'm just trying to get to class. Marcel continued to rock parties and concerts in the 80s and the 90s as DJ Cutfast. Uh, in fact, Marcel's 1989 song is widely credited as the first rap record out of Kansas City. Who knew Butt of the Cut is the first rap record out of Kansas City? Man, it's come a long way, obviously. But it wasn't just him and Von Zell keeping the party scene jumping. Tons of other promoters recognized the power of hip-hop at this time, throwing parties at dance halls, skating rinks, and local high schools. And things really took off when Kansas City's oldest black high school got involved. It was Lincoln High School that really put hip-hop on the map here. Hip-hop was a thing where you had to go out to hear it. This is Sean Edwards again. There was a guy who uh, would throw parties in the Lincoln High School gym every Friday and Saturday night. And that was one of the only places you could really hear hip-hop. One of those things where everybody came up to Lincoln. Lincoln was like whatever the bowling alley or the rolling skate rink was the other day, that was the hip hop party. We might have been like the epicenter. 
for Sean and Marcel, these moments in the early years of hip hop in Kansas City were idyllic and pure. DJs were, were spinning it on vinyl all night long. It was wild because it'd be a mix of high school students and young adults. But, you know, it predated the, the crack era. So there was no violence, no fights, no yelling, no fussing. Just about everybody told me that in order to have these parties, they had to keep the violence out. Um, and if an altercation broke out, the party would be a shut down immediately. So this environment was kind of like a safe space for the youth of that era to express themselves. And unintentionally, it helped cultivate another prominent component of the early hip hop scene in Kansas City, the dancing. And you, you had all these b-boys that did break dancing. It became a thing where, you know, people began competing, people began identifying themselves with the way they move. Do you break dance, Lawrence? Uh, no. I can dance, and I really had aspirations to be a dancer as a young person, but I decided to put on a show for a family member back in the day, my cousin John, and he looked at me like, <laughs> corny <laughs> and I never I never like thought about dance again I you know I, I became the, the cool wallflower I guess during that era I was trying to trying to be the cool kid like everybody else clap your hands everybody if you got what it takes because I'm Curtis Blow and I want you to know that these are the boys Kansas City is known for dancing one of the best dancers in Kansas City at that time was Richard Swoop White Bear he came out of the dance scene with his group, the Imperial Preps, and they went on to dance with M MC Hammer. You know, the Imperial Preps were just were amazing, and they became famous. Dance also drew another KC legend of hip-hop. If it wasn't for breakdancing, pop-locking, and prepping and everything, Technon wouldn't be here, man. Look at them copping me, trying to get top of the boss with a lot of mediocrity. Stalking the properties, want to get off of my monopoly. Tell me who is the one they call Socrates. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's what boosted me to want to do music. Dancing, man. But right as Tech 9 was coming up in the dance scene in, in the late 80s and the 90s, things changed. Hmm, what changed? You had this thing that crept in called crack. I mean, as a kid growing up in the late 80s, I remember when crack hit, and it was, it, it's been a travesty ever since. Local and national politicians during that time were using the war on drugs to crack down. We've also got racism and police brutality mixed in, which intensified as a result of those policies. Uh, Hip-hop naturally became the countercultural resistance to all of those things. And particularly here in Kansas City, the crack epidemic was horrendous yeah. because... Kansas City became a distribution point because of its location in the United States of America. You had older cats who stopped really respecting the rule that you don't get the kids involved. Marcel said this influx of money and the influence of seeing the lifestyle the drug dealers represented in popular culture made it hard for young people to stay away. I mean, hey, as a young person who was growing up then, I definitely had people around me that this was the largest amount of money some black people could have ever had the, had the potential to ever make in their lives. And even though it was an extreme detriment to our community, people needed money at that time. So they jumped in the drug game. In Kansas City, you had MTV. You had, M you had BET. So you saw 
what the drug dealers slash the rappers and everybody was wearing and everything. So it gave you some economics to be able to do some things with. Drugs and the money that came with them also ushered in gang culture from L.A. and other places throughout the West Coast. I mean, quite literally, this was happening all over the United States. But Kansas City was uniquely positioned in this expansion project of the drug trade because our national highway system had a major highway going through here east and west and another one going north and south. So it became almost like a literal hub for places to set up shop. Yeah. The thing that happened when these Crips and Bloods came to Kansas City is, you know, they, they brought two things, their culture and crime. And with that culture, brought in gangster rap and sort of changed the trajectory uh, of, of hip-hop. You know, hip-hop, the lyrics became a little more violent. Welcome to Death Row. Like we always do about this time. <laughs> a little more realistic, a little bit more misogynistic. There goes the neighborhood. Probably seems like it's maybe more like a, a lot more misogynistic. <laughs> I can't disagree with that. So it sounds like the early scene in Kansas City was more like a sponge absorbing trends of things that were happening from both coasts. Yeah, I mean, you can say that. So when was it, though, that Kansas City started to develop its own, like, unique sound? That came around... Into in the 90s. It was kind of like the golden age of hip-hop in Kansas City. It was like an incredible time for hip-hop. Everybody was young, they were hungry, they were talented, and they were dope. So who was coming up here then? Everybody knows Tech 9 Like, his name is, it rings bells everywhere. Oh yeah, Tech 9 <laughs> 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 I remember when I was a young dude here in Tech and knowing he had a really unique sound. His lyricism is just downright masterful, and that's kind of like what drew me in as a young person. Um, as an older millennial who grew up in an era where wordplay was really important, his flow, it just it drew me in immediately. But Tech 9 would be the first to say that his sound is, in part, the product of two up-and-coming producers in the 90s. Producers are kind of like the evolution of the DJs. They create the melodies and the beats that the artists rhyme over, like from start to finish. Yo, it's Mr. I don't understand, man. Don Juan from back in the day. You know what I'm saying? DJ Icy Rock, you know what I'm saying? That, that core Tech 9 went all over the world, you know? Like, these producers were crazy, man. Another big player in Kansas City who was really important to us all was a guy named Rich the Factor. I don't know anybody who listens to rap music around here or any form of hip hop that do not give Rich his flowers. Coming out of the perilous environments of the 1980s and the 90s, you know, the crack cocaine era and all of that, he's who made gangster rap into a Kansas City staple. He was like our version of Oakland's Too Short or LA's Ice T. Pole position, that's it, right there, baby. You can't get more Kansas City than that. At that time, no, because the thing was, that's when everybody here was rocking everything Bay Area. Even OG hip hop legend Tech Nine agrees. Remember, I said KC is uh, lovers of gangster shit. That's gangster shit. Rich is 
the embodiment of gangster shit in Kansas City. They see themselves in rich. So naturally, a hustler's mentality and gangster mentality gonna go with the gangsters. All good. That's why they loved me. My, when I say they, I mean my, our people. They loved me when I was 57th Street Rogue Dog Villains. Let's get fucked up and it's on now. It's on now. My villain's about to move the crowd. It's on now. We about to show these busters how. It's on now. The 57th Street Road Dog Villains was one of the early groups Tech 9 was a part of, and they are considered gangster rap. But Suzanne, do you remember what Tech really started out doing? Oh yeah, dancing. Yup, dancing was the gateway. Dancing, man, going out battling people at Stars, you know what I'm saying? Dancing until I was rapping at Stars and won the contest to open up for EPMD and DJ Quick and Kwame down at Kemper Arena on my graduation day. So I knew what I was gonna do from there on because I didn't walk. Oh, whoa, so he skipped graduation you to just, perform. You just heard it. I walked across another stage where I was performing. So in early 1990s, the DJ still controlled the parties in Kansas City, but they were moving to bigger venues. And this is where I want to talk to you about Gary Edwin. Better known as DJ Fresh. Fresh is the godfather of local Kansas City hip-hop DJs. And a huge part of his influence was his famous mixtapes. We've been buying DJ Fresh tapes since we were young, young teens, man. DJ Fresh had it locked with mellow music, with hip-hop, whatever you needed to get to to to, to get it on with a, with a with a lady back then, you know what I'm saying? DJ Fresh had every tape for that. The mixtape thing it didn't hit its peak in rap culture until the early 90s because CDs, obviously they weren't affordable yet for people living on the east side. So did you get a chance to talk to DJ Fresh? No, but I did get a chance to talk to his brother, who you heard from earlier, the popper. Oh, that's so cool that they're brothers. So you'd have the record and then you put onto a tape and then my brother bought a tape duplicator. So he would duplicate the tapes and then he'd have the tapes. So then people would ride around in their car listening to the new music that just dropped from record onto a tape like very quick. You know what I'm saying? So they'd be fiending like, when's the next one? Back then, when you bought an album or record, you only got to hear that artist. They really didn't do features or none of that back then. So making tapes was how aspiring DJs exploited the market by creating an entirely different audio experience for the listener while building a unique revenue stream for themselves. Another part of this culture was cars. In the 1980s and the 1990s, hip-hop gave Kansas City car lovers another way to show off. And peacock, so to speak. Here, what it was is that we already had the culture where everybody here always liked to floss. That, that's just the bottom line. Marcel Good said riding clean was very important. Greatest thing about it for us was we kept it Kansas City when we did it. We did it Kansas City style. The paint, the interior, everything. That innovation and showmanship of car culture wouldn't be ingrained in the Kansas City culture without hip-hop, full stop. Hip-hop made it. Not only are you going to see me when I pull up, you going to hear me when I pull up. Another element of 90s KC hip-hop that was adopted from New York are competitive rap battles. 
places like Swope Park, Seventh Heaven, and other spots east of Truce, places that have always been burgeoning with black culture. Swope Park is Kansas City's largest park, and since desegregation, really a center of the black experience based on its location within the urban core. Here's the popper again to explain that. I'd be like, hey, everybody, we're going to Swope Park. We would stand on top of the tables. Then if if every, anybody wanted to call somebody out, they stand on top of the table and then battle the other person. It wasn't even like a definition for it. It was just like, oh, shoot, we ready to get together, smoke a whole bunch of weed, and then we just gonna just go in a circle and just play a beat and freestyle. The popper said he felt a lot of pressure during these battles because he and his brother DJ Fresh, obviously they had a family reputation to uphold. Turned me into being an MC and I don't classify myself as a rapper because MCs and rappers are different. You know what I'm saying? A MC is like Ron Ron would be an MC. This is Ron Ron. He was one of the hottest Kansas City MCs in the 2000s. Basically, MCs are more like a, a refined rapper. Like he's lyrical. He can tell the story, he can draw the picture, he's animated, he's like, he's all, like, he can do everything. So, Lawrence, okay, we've talked about a lot of men, but where were the women? I want to hear more about what they were doing. I asked a lot of people about this, and I was told there weren't many women making noise in the Kansas City hip-hop scene back then. But one name that kept coming up was Soleil. Soleil began rapping at the age of six and was originally part of an all-female group called Divine. Her slick flows caught the attention of Tech 9 and his producer Don Juan in the mid-90s. That helped her get signed to a major label as a solo artist. Uh, Sean Edwards says she was the most prominent female rapper out of Kansas City during the 90s. I don't know too many other rappers out of Kansas City that have ever had a pop hit. And her debut album was just like, took off, went through the roof. And she had the music video, she had the look. I mean, she had everything. Oh, cool. So, okay, where is she now? Is she still rapping? So she's married to Professor Griff, a member of Public Enemy, Chuck D's group from the yeah, 1980s. Yeah. Um, but she left the industry in 1999, and Sean says it was because of the misogynistic nature that dominated rap during that time. I had a chance to talk to her, and she said when she looked back at it all, she just did not like how they were just trying to, you know, over-sexualize everything she did, and that just wasn't her. You know, she kind of joked and said, look, I was just a nerd who went to Lincoln College Prep. I wasn't about all that, and I didn't want to do music like that. And after her debut album, she pushed it all aside and jumped out of the business. In recent years, though, Soleil jumped back in the game. Inspired by motherhood and her wellness practices, she says she wants her songs to feel universal. Women's and wish, women's issues have just always been um, my heart. You know, I, we all have our own uh, past. We all have our own interests and likes and um, preferences. And I tend to navigate towards whatever it is that spirit pulls me towards authentically. Man, I respect her for that. So that sounds cool. Okay, we've covered the 80s and 90s. I'm curious, how did the turn of the century change things for Kansas City's hip-hop scene? 
by the early 2000s in KC, things were looking great for hip-hop culture. We were right on the cusp of something big with Rich and Tech and our relationship with the West Coast. And hip-hop was catching on by being celebrated in our schools, our parks, and parties all across the metro. But things were about to take a turn for the worse. Hey, PHKC producer Mackenzie Martin here. Hope you're enjoying this deep dive into Kansas City's hip-hop scene. As you heard, Kansas City's historically black high school, Lincoln College Preparatory Academy, played a really important role in building up the scene. And we actually did an episode all about that school and efforts that students and alumni are taking to preserve its rich history. It was in our very first season, so scroll way down in the feed and check it out. It's called The Black History of Lincoln Prep. Okay, now back to the show. All right, Lawrence. So tell me about what happened at the turn of the century. Nationally, uh, hip-hop in the 2000s was known as the Bling Bling era. You know, shout out to Cash Money Records for creating that iconic term. Bling Bling marked the genre's transition from underground hype to being fully commercial. Uh, nationally, this era was really dominated by hip-hop acts in the South, Atlanta, think of Outkast, New Orleans, Houston, and Miami. But here in Kansas City in the early 2000s, the era was marked in part by Kansas City's relationship with its sister city all the way in California, Oakland of all places. I'm like, damn, they love this California. So I was like, oh, I got, I'm gonna make beats that they like, like that. That's Don Juan, legendary Kansas City producer for Tech 9 in addition to national artists from Oakland like E-40 and Mac Dre. So that influence of the Bay, that's where the hip-hop side came in versus us just getting stuck in a mob. Don Juan says that California's influence kind of made the KC rap scene of this time period dependent upon gangster rap, which he said had some positives by making our rappers in our city more relevant, but he also said not all of that influence was great. I always kind of felt like that hurt Kansas City and helped Kansas City. I felt like it hurt Kansas City because sometimes they will praise the Bay Area rappers more than they praise their own. The Bay's influence on the KC hip-hop scene definitely overshadowed popular local artists like Tech and other young rappers like Fat Tone, the new face of gangster rap in Kansas City. I was in my early 20s during this period, and I heard Tech 9 and Fat Tone around. But I can also tell you that Mac Dre out of Oakland was played at every party or hip-hop club that I went to in the metro. That's not my job. I don't do that. I'm a pimp slash rapper. I thought you knew that. And we all do that. Should I serve him the news and let him know he's gonna be walking in some brand new shoes? Ooh, you a fool. Gotta watch thyself. But sadly, Mac Dre's popularity in Kansas City cost him his life. On November 1st, 2004, Mac Dre had finished a performance at a local club and was driving on the highway when unknown assailants fired rounds into the van he was riding in. He was just 34 years old. Oh, my God. I mean, the assumption was that it was people in Kansas City who did it, and it may or may not have had to do with a drug deal. Whatever the facts were at the time, this immediately caused a rift between the two cities that morphed into what was dubbed the West Coast Midwest War, 
less than a year later, an Oakland area rapper allegedly lured KC rapper Fat Tone to Las Vegas. There, Fat Tone and another Kansas City man were gruesomely killed as retaliation for the murder of Mac Dre. Wow. It was mad sad, man. Mac Dre, I still listen to his music to this day and just understanding that it happened like literally blocks from where I grew up at. It was like, Lord. It was one reason I wanted to, to rip myself of this place in the, in the early aughts. The dispute definitely caused a spike in, uh, in crime in Kansas City. And though the police eventually cleared Fatone of being involved in Mac Dre's killing, they never arrested anyone in the case. Yeah, that messed up a lot of stuff for Kansas City as far as going into the hip-hop community outside. Then it made people not want to come inside to the city because they like, dang. To this day, that tragedy still confounds Tech 9 don't make no sense that Mac Dre died here, man, because they love Mac Dre. That's how you know that it was street shit that happened. But it's gangster shit here and it's gangster shit there. And we are all intertwined, man, with the Bay and KC, man, for forever. Even though Kansas City's reputation took a major hit in the aughts, Tech 9 Rich the Factor, and the Poppers still put out some of their best work during that decade. And the popper says they didn't have to leave Kansas City to do it either. It's not like everybody's objective is like, oh, I want to be a famous rap star. You know what I'm saying? Some people like, shoot, they just want to hold it down. But that's not to say it was easy to make it as a rapper. Rappers like the popper, they was always hustling. I come from hustlers. Like, my daddy is a hustler. My mama's a hustler. The popper says sometimes being a hustler involves some non-legit business ventures from time to time. But to help stay legit, the popper started selling clothes. You know, fashion is huge. In 2015, the popper leveraged that subculture by creating his own fashion brand called I'm KC. All I know is Kansas City, so I've always um, stuck my Kansas City flag in the ground. And it was always about a 500-foot-long flag. It started out small, too. He just sold shirts out the trunk of his car at the Country View Market off 59th Street and Swell Parkway in the neighborhood he grew up in. It started with a, with a song called I'm KC. And it turned into a, you know, I turned the song to a hotline, into a street into a movement. He ain't lying. If you go to that store, everything in that store is about KC. He even has a line of shirts celebrating two streets tied to black history in Kansas City. There's Prospect Avenue. Prospect is like the underdog. So it's like we always been the underdog. And of course, the dichotomy of that is Troost Avenue, which people have wanted to rename for a long time. As you heard in the Kansas City song, we bring the energy, the electricity, the votes. This past post day, Jordan got us crispy. Truce was a slave owner. Google up that history. The poppers' truce reference and the line of merchandise that was born out of the push to change the street's name, it brings us back to the roots of hip-hop. Starting out as this underground activism, similar to jazz and blues, it's one of the rare times where black people can illustrate their lives from their own point of view. 
So what is the hip-hop scene like now in Kansas City? Well, the music has changed, but resistance is still its core. Sean Edwards says recent social movements like Black Lives Matter highlighted hip-hop's long history of resistance to police brutality, white supremacy, and other systems of oppression. During the, you know, the George Floyd incident, there was, there was a lot of rappers coming to the forefront with messaging, whether it's like, you know, push against sexism, the push against ageism, you know, economic disparity, police brutality. Like it's it's always been in the music. I mean, so many different artists have delivered so many different messages about the injustices that not only here in America, but around the world. That's cool. I've, I've always been a fan of a lot of the socially conscious hip-hop artists. Me too, me too. Uh, Tribe Called Quest is probably one of my favorite groups of all time. That was my first concert. Really? Yeah. Oh, look, we gotta get into that. <laughs> but another thing, there's a lot more women are in hip-hop now. Uh, two of the biggest names in KC hip-hop right now are women, uh, like Miss Kush. And there's also Rob Lowe, the star. There's so many of them, man, you know what I'm saying? Just all these dope-ass female rappers, man. The tables have turned. <laughs> I feel like now there's a lot more women just in the music industry, period. That's Kansas City rapper Sky Cali, a.k.a. Sleazy World Sky. It was Tom, really. Like, there's a million, you know, different male rappers, so why can't there be a million different female? Women's Voices has always been in hip-hop. That was Shay Lyric, another up-and-coming rapper in Kansas City. She agrees. But it was just a matter of time before it was time for us to just explode. Here comes the two to the three to the four. Shay grew up here in Kansas City, listening to her dad's rap and R&B albums, fantasizing about being an artist. And today, it's actually happening. I feel like women been suppressed enough, and so our voices are bigger and louder, and um, we're taking our demand back. And um, we're com- when we're coming in, we're coming in with fresh new ideas. We're coming in with different looks. Well, and I'm a big fan of the Energy and Jam show on KKFI. It's your boy DJ E, a.k.a. Eddie Bo, a.k.a. Black Caesar. And this is the Energy and Jam show coming to you Which every Saturday. highlights local hip-hop artists, and you definitely hear a lot more, you know, women artists and a lot more diversity in the style of music that's coming out of Kansas City. And that's never been on more display than this year. I mean, 2023 is the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. So many award shows and celebrations commemorating the groundbreaking art form have taken place all over the country. And Kansas City had a big event just this past summer too, right? They definitely did. In August, Kansas City came together to celebrate its hip-hop heroes at the historic Gym Theater on 18th and Vine. The packed two-and-a-half-hour show featured performances from many of the people we've been talking about. The Popper performed, Tech Nine performed, DJ Fresh put on a masterful DJ set with him and a, and a couple of his buddies. Rob Lowe even got up there and did her thing. It was spitters, and they came out, you know, they came out gunning. That's Phantom of the Beat who worked on production for the show. See these fire-spitting artists over a, a track that I did, you know what I mean, for hip-hop's 50th, you know, that, you can't explain that feeling, you know what I'm saying? As a lifelong hip-hop head, honestly, it was a real sight to see. Tech was there too. 
I had no idea that it was going to be such a wonderful time and such a family reunion out of this world, man. You know what I'm saying? Real hip-hop spitters, man, you know? And they ain't, they ain't the only ones, man. There's so many more. The type of artist that grows out of Kansas City's hip-hop scene has expanded so much since I was a young person sweating it out in the party halls and dance clubs. There are way too many people to name, and there's no way we could have mentioned everyone who shaped hip-hop in Kansas City, but that's also what's so exciting about this story. What people get wrong about KC hip-hop is that it's non-existent, and it's so existent. If you could describe the KC hip-hop scene in one word, what would it be? Eclectic. It's It's too many different things. Everybody's so different. It's a lot of gangster, but it's a lot of other shit. Too many different types of styles to say one type of style is KC. It's multifaceted. Lawrence Brooks IV is KCUR's race and culture reporter. And if you want to hear more Kansas City hip-hop after this episode, like I'm sure you do, you can find a playlist curated to celebrate this monumentous anniversary at kcur.org slash people's history. It just might be the perfect addition to your New Year's Eve party. A People's History of Kansas City is a production from KCUR Studios. It's hosted by me, Suzanne Hogan. Our senior producer is Mackenzie Martin, who produced this episode with reporting from Lawrence Brooks IV. Editing by Luke Martin and mixing by me and intern Anna Schmidt. All right, get ready for this. I'm going to see if I can do this all in one take. Music this episode from... The Winstons, Bobby Bland, Cameo, The Click, The Sugar Hill Gang, Grandmaster Flash, and The Furious Five, LL Cool J, DJ Cutfest, Biz Marquee, The Treacherous Three, Fat Boys, Curtis Blow, Tech Nine, Dr. Dre, Don Juan, Rich the Factor, 57th Street Road Dog Villains, DJ Fresh, Ron Ron, Soleil, JT Money, Wu-Tang Clan, Outkast, Fat Tone, Mac Dre, The Popper, Tribe Called Quest, Miss Kush, Rob Lowe, Shay Lyric, Sky Cali, Dead Prez, and Blue Dot Sessions. The Soleil interview you heard was from 247HH.com. And shout out to KCUR's Up to Date for letting us use their interview with Shay Lyric and Sky Cali. You also heard clips from the MTV Video Music Awards, Crush Groove, Beat Street, and KKFI's Energy and Jam Show. All right, that's it. Let us know what you thought about this episode by emailing us at peopleshistorykc at kcur.org. We also have a Facebook group you can join for more stories about Kansas City's past. And if you like this podcast, please consider writing us a review or share it with a friend. We'll be back in January. Until then, I'm Suzanne Hogan. Happy New Year. Thank you.